We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovics. Joining me today is Steve St. Angelo of the SRS Rocco Report. Steve, thanks for joining me again today. Tom, been a while, a lot going on. Today we had the Fed chairman talk. We see the markets take off today. So yeah, it's great to be back. Good to see you and a lot to talk about. Absolutely. I mean, there's tons to talk about since the last time we spoke. Of course, today we're recording this on Wednesday, December 13th. Mm -hmm. This probably won't air until Friday. But yeah, big move in gold again today. Back up on the a little bit of the dovish stance, it seems like, from mm-hmm. Chairman Powell. We're speaking mm-hmm. about one o'clock mountain time. So I believe he has yet to deliver his entire press conference, Jay Powell, but we'll we'll see how the market moves there. But you know, with the move in gold back to the highs and seeing the first monthly close over two thousand dollars. We should be filled with optimism and joy, right? But I want to get your perspective on this move, zooming out a little bit. So from your standpoint, is this a sustained move and what would confirm this precious metals rally? Tom, it's a good question. Uh, When you look at the gold price over long term, it's interesting if you overlay it with the global gold ETF flows in and out, it tends to be a, a pretty good indicator. Now, some people would say that shouldn't be, but it... I could see if it was one or two years, but it's done this up until last year. Mm-hmm. And it changed last year. We start seeing outflows of gold in the last part of 2022, and that continued into 2023. But you know who started buying more gold? was the central banks. So that put more of a bid. But what happened more recently, that tends to be the inverse dollar trade and options and futures. They're, because I can tell you, the institutions and, and, and high net worth individuals in retail are not going into the ETFs. And you talk to most precious metal dealers and wholesalers, there's more selling. They're not buying. So we're not, this is more of a futures paper movement of gold. That's why it went up and thin trading to 2130. And it's come all the way down. And then today, what do you see? Powell opens his mouth. The stock market's up three hundred fifty. Gold's up three hundred dollars. Silver's up seventy five cents. So I think th- this is these paper uh, digital futures mark moving around algorithms. That that's what. And I don't think I don't think it, it's sustainable on the short term. We can get into that uh, mm-hmm. into the next chart, which I think is important. Absolutely. So are there negative divergences here in the gold chart that gives you pause, Steve? Yes, if you look at this chart now, uh, I'm not a professional technician. I'm, a, you know, I, I spend time looking at it. But I, when I saw this, this is a monthly chart of sil- of gold, and you could see, you know, the RSI has been coming down over the past few years, and even the MACD. And so, even though the gold, it's not a massive divergence, but when you see this last rally, that to me just gives me caution. Now, I, I, let me put a footnote. If we have any banking crisis, any financial crisis, we get China decides they're going to uh, attack Taiwan or this Middle East thing really blows up. Well, it changes the entire dynamics, just like Fed Ch- uh, Powell opened in his mouth. We could see this major moves in gold. So if we don't have that, Tom, if we don't have any geopolitical or major financial 
uh, you know, problems. We could see lower metals prices into next year if the economy starts to roll over. Uh, and so I just want people to keep that in the back of their mind because this chart kind of made me concerned. And it's also the gold miners are making a lot of, they're making good profits right now. And so when you look at this, I'm just saying, if we don't have any major events in the markets, we we shouldn't be surprised. Let me put it that way. We shouldn't be surprised if we get a weakness in the metals prices, especially gold. So Steve, are you, you know, I'm just trying to piece together exactly what you're saying here. Do you think we're going to get a weaker gold price without these exogenous kind of fear-driven buying events into gold? And then if we combine that with a a recession that we end up having gold sold off because you end up selling whatever you can to meet, let's say, margin requirements or just you know rent and whatever else you might need to cover in the event of a recession. Well, you know, there's two ways to look at that. Um, a lot of investors are getting out of their um, uh, deposits in the banks and they're going into treasuries to get that five, five and a half percent yield. They're going into money market funds. Because most people want their, they don't, they don't want their money to sit there and do anything. They were forced when we had zero interest rates. Now the interest rates have gone up to five and a half percent. They're trying to take advantage of that. So we're seeing that with with the in the gold ETF flows, investors are selling gold, and they're moving out and they're getting into financial assets. And so that's one aspect that has pulled that demand away from the institutional market. And also we're seeing the same thing with retail bullion investors who are selling gold and and for various reasons. And they're likely maybe moving into earning a yield. If you own a lot of gold, you likely store it. You've got to pay storage. So we need to understand that dynamic. And and so, uh, again, unless we have a major event, if we don't have a major, again, we shouldn't be surprised to see the, the gold price, it could become weaker, especially because look at the gold price has gone up with, with the Dow Jones today. You know, everything's gone up. So they can go up together, they can come down together. And, I, and especially with the profits the gold miners are making, there is a big margin there. And so we've seen that compress over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll get into that, you know, because that's something that you and I have talked about before is this idea of the cost of production driving the gold price higher. So right. give us a little bit of a refresher on that dynamic. And is it a case of the cure for high prices being high prices? Well, you get the gold price. Uh, let me let me just, before I say this, uh, I do believe there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of money being printed, a lot of treasuries being added. And, and, and that's just good for gold and, and silver. However, it isn't yet. Because people, Americans, actually, Americans and pension funds in the United States have purchased two trillion of U.S. treasuries in the last year and a half. So they didn't purchase gold. They didn't purchase silver. They purchased treasuries. So the U.S. the, the precious metals are competing with that market. And so when you look at this chart, this is my my analysis of the top gold miners' cost of production. And right now it's about sixteen fifty. It, and with lower oil prices, it's better. But if you look at the price now, about two thousand, they're making three hundred fifty profit. They're making about a twenty one percent profit margin, Tom. And when they have done that in the past, that's kind of a high. And then you know we could see that 
start to decline where the gold price comes down and the margin compresses. And I'm saying that could happen when the economy rolls over uh, and there isn't any major geopolitical or financial banking event. Mm-hmm. If we have one of those two, then then it's we can see, again, much higher gold prices. So how does the price of oil factor in here, Stephen, and its behavior over the last two weeks? You know, that's obviously a major input into gold mining. Yeah. So how does that factor in as well? Well, in the third quarter, that, that information on this chart for the 1650, that's based on the third quarter. Mm-hmm. Now, since then, and which I didn't, I, I called it wrong. I thought we would, we, remain, we would see higher oil prices. We didn't. Oil prices actually have collapsed down mm-hmm. to below 70. Uh, that now, in probably the next quarter, is going to start lowering the cost, the production cost, like, so it could actually fall. And so then the margins are going to be, if the price of gold stays at 2000, then the margins are going to be even, even better. Mm-hmm. And so we've got lower natural gas prices, lower oil prices. That's just better for the gold miners. Unfortunately, we'll talk about this too. The investors aren't really buying the gold miners, even though their margins are better. I, fi- I find that fascinating. Well, you know, we've spoken before about margins and about the idea that they're being compressed. And the idea of the ASIC or the all-in sustaining cost comes up. Right. Is that the best way to measure the cost for production of a company? I don't think so. Uh, and this started a few decades ago. For decades, they did the cash costs, and everyone believed the cash costs. And then they realized that wasn't, you know, that wasn't the real cost. It was the they did the all-in sustaining cost, and so that's what they do now. The Silver mining industry, gold mining industry comes out with this all-in sustaining cost. Now, if you look at Barrick here, you see to get their $1,352 all-in sustaining cost, they have omitted what is known as project capital expenditures. And you can see that. They have sustaining capital on the top. They include that when they figure out their all-in sustaining cost. They exclude their project capital expenditures because they call this developmental or expansionary. If you add that, just that alone, which was $691 million for the first three quarters of this year, you bring up that all-in sustaining cost, which is $1,345 for the nine months, it comes up to $1,557. Mm-hmm. So people say, well, you know, that developmental shouldn't be included because they're increasing production. Well, if we go to the next chart, you're going to see, well, for Barrick, that hasn't been the case. Because this is Barrick's annual gold production from 98 to 2022. And you don't need to be a brain surgeon to see that their production has been declining. So even though they're doing expansionary developmental capital, which lowers their all-in sustaining cost, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, uh, they're, they're artificially lowering what it really costs because they're they're not increasing production it continues to decline if they were doing developmental and we can see higher and higher production now some companies are doing that it's it's not across the board but some companies are using developmental they're slowly building but they get to a peak so it's i use the adjusted net income as a percentage of the profit and i confirm it with the free cash flow uh profit per ounce and they tend to confirm each other and so th- that's my analysis. And so I go by the 1650, not not the 1354 that Barrick says, 
because they are excluding all the costs. They are excluding some costs. And I call that all in sustaining costs, Tom. I call that the going out of business sale. And why would you invest in a company if they're going out of business? And so that's how that's the difference between the industry that uses that all in sustaining cost and my total cost, which is 1650. So, Steve, is it more a case of they don't have as high of grades and that is hurting their production? Do you think it's, you know, they're waiting for a time when gold, you know, has a lot of momentum to replace those ounces? Is it inefficiencies? Like, is there somewhere that we can kind of point to to understand where that that fall in production is coming from? Well, uh, we're, we're seeing other companies that are starting up in smaller mid-tier companies that are, you know, uh, taking up this, uh, let's say, supply that's maybe some of the majors are losing like, like Barrick. But the issue is, you know, you go 100 years ago and you can get 20, you know, 25 in some places in Australia, 30 grams per ton. We're almost talking an ounce or ton. And so, if you were a mining uh, person today, a geologist, and you got transported back in a time machine to a saloon, and you're telling them how you got a high-grade gold mine of three and a half grams per ton, the whole bar, all the gold miners would be laughing you out of the bar because no, they wouldn't even touch that. And so it was due to bringing on oil, we were able to build these massive haul trucks to extract this very low quality ore. And so even though we're, we are finding some more grades, some more uh, deposits, three, four, five grams per ton, it's it's still very costly. And so again, it's really not changing. And I look at the top six, I look at the top six and and Tom, it's it's these top six average about 1650, you, you know, and if you go back, uh, uh, you go back to 2004, that was $400 an ounce. And now it's four times. That's why the gold price has moved up. I, a lot of people don't get that. Like Harry Dent Jr. He doesn't understand. If you want to buy gold, you're going to have to pay what the gold miners take. It costs to produce it. Mm-hmm. So I, I, that's that's how I look at the market. So Steve, what do you think really explains the movement of the gold price here? You know, is it is it manipulation? Is it selling the futures contracts? You know, what do you kind of attribute that to? Uh, this is a big debate between the manipulation theory and the not manipulation. Well, you know, the central banks are manipulating. If if, uh, if Janet Yellen can add three and a half trillion in new treasuries and debt in a year in a year and a half, mm-hmm. that's three and a half trillion. The global mining industry added about four hundred billion of new gold in that year and a half period, but it cost them. Like three hundred and fifty billion to produce that, four hundred billion of gold. The uh, Secretary Yellen didn't cost her anything to produce those three and a half trillion in new, in new treasuries. Mm-hmm. Now she's going to have to service those treasuries, which is sixty billion of extra service cost. But this is the issue that uh, I think it, the market is now, and we're seeing a lot of options trading. There was a there was a chart on zero hedge. It's over sixty billion now in options. You go back a decade, it was four or five billion. We're seeing a lot more leverage. I think the leverage, the algorithms, the futures trading is pushing these prices around a lot more volatile. And again, as I mentioned, we're not getting, uh, we're not seeing much gold flows into the ETFs like we were during the pandemic shutdown, during the Russian-Ukraine war. In the last year, year and a half, we're seeing more net outflows. And again, 
we're not we're not getting a lot of buying from bullion investors. They're mostly selling. So I, it just makes sense to me that right now it's a lot of very highly volatile futures leverage trading that's pushing the price around. That's what it seems to me. So Steve, you know, as we're as we're talking about the profit margins of the miners, if they're still mm-hmm. relatively good, what do you think explains this weakness of the miners relative to the gold price? You know, I've had a couple of people weigh on on this, and I'd like your two cents as well. Yeah, and there's a chart on that, which is uh, pretty interesting. How the the GDX, the the gold miners uh, ETF, if you look at the gold price. Uh, it's it's the gold price and the gold miners ETF. They have separated about. It started about May 2022, and it's gotten worse, much worse. And so I could see back, I could see this back at the end of 2022. Why? Because oil prices had skyrocketed. Oil had gone up to 120. Uh, natural gas in the United States was over nine dollars. So it was really eating into the profits of the gold miners. Uh, costs were high and the gold price was falling. But now we're seeing the oil prices been declining and you see the, 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 the difference between the gold miners ETF line chart and the gold price. It's separated. So two things are going to happen. Either the gold miners are going to start moving back up to match the gold price. That could happen. But the Dow Jones now is getting very overbought. And typically, the buyers follow uh, the Dow. They follow the broader markets. And so what is going to happen? Is the gold miners going to start moving back up to re- meet, meet the gold price? Or is the gold price going to start coming back down more to meet the, the miners? Some are suggesting that miners aren't confirming this gold price rally. Mm-hmm. I, and I don't have the answer. But it, when you look at this chart, one or two of those things are going to happen. And to me, when you look at this is more futures and options trading and leverage. And if we do get the downside in the markets into 2024 and no major exogenous events, then I think the gold price is what's going to come down more to meet the miners. That That's just what I think. I could be wrong, but that's what makes more sense to me. You know, as I think about that though, Steve, you know, we hear that the central banks are buying record amounts of gold. Right. So, you know, if there's, if there's record demand from the central banks, is that not at all being matched by the rest of the market. And that's why, you know, net, we don't have the demand to keep driving the gold price higher or barring an exogenous, you know, news event. Well, you know, you bring up a good point. And I did a, I did a uh, report on this for the, my subscribers. I looked at the World Gold Council and each year they have all the demand. And I don't have a chart for this, unfortunately. They have all the demand. And then even the ETF demand, whether it's inflows or outflows. Well, in 20 and 20 and 21, you had a lot, you had good demand, but the over-the-counter market was buying, I think in 2020 during the pandemic shutdown, even though we had a lot of buying of physical, a thousand metric tons was purchased by the over-the-counter market, whoever they are. And then it fell in 22. And so the thing is, even though we've gotten central bank buying, uh, we, as I mentioned, we had about 300 and we had about 400, no, 350 billion of buying globally of gold in the last year and a half. 
you had two trillion of Americans buying uh, treasuries and Janet Yelling adding three and a half trillion. Now you start adding the rest of the world. China's doing it. The ECB is doing it. Japan. So a lot of investors are going into these financial assets to gain a yield. When they realize that these treasuries may not be, they be risky. That's when you start to see a lot of gold come out of the over-the-counter market to feed not only bullion demand, ETF demand, uh, central bank demand. When they all come together and start having a lot of demand due to we start getting problems in the treasury and bond markets globally, that's when the prices become sustained higher. And I, I don't see big declines then. I think the market goes into changing from building wealth to tra- to uh, protecting it. Well, I'd like to get there, Stephen, let's say the issuance of treasuries. I know we have a chart for that, but I wanted to ask you if the silver miners and silver is in a much different position than gold. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, the uh, silver miners, and there's not that many of them compared to the gold miners, uh, uh, their costs now or the third quarter was like about twenty two fifty, and and unfortunately with the with the with the silver price, right around the twenty three twenty four range, uh, they're probably doing a little better now, or they will if the oil price remains low in the next quarter. If silver prices stay at twenty four or whatever, but they were breaking even. Matter of fact, all except one of the primary silver miners, Hecla, uh, Andover Silver. First Majestic, they all, they all lost money. The only one that actually made a profit was Fortuna Silver, but that was due to they have three gold mines now. And so about 73 or 4% of their revenue is now from gold. And so they did pretty well with these gold mines, but most of the, all the primary silver miners actually lost money, Pan American Silver, in the third quarter. So it just goes to show you the primary silver miners are struggling while the gold miners aren't. They're not struggling. Why? Because there's, there's that big gap, that margin, and it's that that gap is still there. Uh, the silver miners maybe have a little bit, uh, a dollar right now, but that that's not much. They would need to see twenty eight, thirty dollar silver to to have the same kind of margins that the gold miners are having. So you could see the difference. You know, I want to go back just to kind of clarify something in my mind, if we could. Sure. The idea that, let's say, the ASIC shows us a certain you know, margin for gold, and then if we calculate the total cost, that's different. So are mm-hmm. you calculating that the margins are still relatively good for the big gold miners based on their total cost or the ASIC? The, the total cost, because... Okay. Uh, that that's that's the real because you know even though it's development developmental capital that that uh, Barrick spent seven almost seven hundred million, they still spent that money. They didn't you know it wasn't printed. It still costs them. That's still a capital expense. They just uh, conveniently try to keep it away from the, what their costs. And the whole mining industry does this. But now what you're seeing is, and I showed you, they had the total cost. I think we're going to start going to the total cost, which isn't really all the cost, but it's better. It's better than the all in sustaining cost. So we went from cash cost, we went all in sustaining. Now the, I think the mining industry is going to wise up and include the developmental in the whole thing. And that's going to increase the total cost, 
even more than the all in sustaining. Uh, and so, yeah, the real cost for the, the gold miners is sixteen fifty because they're still spending, investing that capital. And we, I just showed you, Barrick isn't increasing production. They're just replacing mines that they're selling or production that they're losing. And so this is what we need to understand. And the mining industry isn't really growing overall. Uh, a little bit this year, but overall, we're, we're not really seeing a lot of growth in the gold mining industry. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, you know, we were talking about the idea that this growth in treasuries is just going to keep going here. Are central yeah. banks going to be able to keep issuing debt to finance their spending? And as you see it, what could limit that ability going forward? Yeah, that's the uh, trillion dollar question. And uh, maybe, maybe a couple more than one trillion. Yeah, that's that's the that's the quadrillion dollar question. And we do have a chart for that. The the thing, this is the issue. Uh, uh, we had Fed chair increase the uh, Fed funds rate by 5.3%. And that's what he did to stop inflation. And so you get it. At the same time, Janet Yellen added three and a half trillion of debt. So they're fighting each other. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the markets aren't rolling over. And so the, you know, in that chart, you see that the, uh, the gold price. Okay, this is, this is what we need to understand. Uh, I, I started in 2007 because that was the global financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And I put everything at zero. And what we have here is the growth of U.S. Treasuries. And what do you see? By the end of this year, it's going to reach about 21.4, 21.5 trillion extra. And you have to remember, we started at about 5 trillion in 2007. We've increased it to 21.5 trillion. Look at the U.S. gold reserves. If we go by what they, we have, we supposedly have 8,135 tons. The increase in the gold reserves, if you put a $2,000 gold price, is about $320 billion over that same period. So if you divide the increase in the treasuries by the gold, it's 66 times. Now, someone owns those treasuries, and those treasuries continually have to be retired and then reissued. That gold stays there. It doesn't have to be retired. It doesn't have to be reissued. This is the, the problem. Now, they're going to continue to issue their, issue more treasury. But when you see, and this was interesting, in the November treasury statement, it's a $315 billion deficit in one year, in one month. Mm-hmm. I just saw the, the U.S. Treasury monthly statement for November was a $315 billion deficit. How long can you continue doing that? And how long is someone going to continue buying these treasuries? And so I, it's going to continue for a while, but we need to understand the U.S. Treasury prints these assets or supposed assets. I call them liabilities masquerading as assets with no cost. They didn't manufacture them. They didn't extract them and mine these treasuries. They just printed the treasury and now they have to, they have to finance that treasury, right? The, the service cost. But the gold miners are providing real assets because it's the cost to bring that asset to the market. The treasury, there's no cost to bring that asset to the market. It's basically free. And and that's the issue that the market doesn't understand. The institutional investor does not understand these problems with these financial assets. And that gets into trouble, Tom, when we start to hit that energy cliff. And that's why 
they'll likely continue doing this for a while, but it's going to become unsustainable because I think it's going to be hard for the, the, the market to continue to absorb this kind of debt treasury bond growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find it interesting to look at this chart of real GDP growth versus treasury growth. And it almost reminds me of like a teenager that got a credit card and you know his salary is growing a little bit year over year, but yet his his debts are exponentially starting to increase much more over his actual income. Yeah, and I I, I went to the Silver Symposium in uh, at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas in October, and I have a chart globally, and it's it's much worse globally because the uh, the real GDP over the same period in the in the globe increased 28 trillion and that was inflated. This is also inflated even though it's real GDP. Well, if the GDP globally increased 21 trillion, Tom the financial assets increased 281 trillion. Mm-hmm. That's 10 times. So I I've been a broken record but it's important. We just have enough energy to produce the goods and services. We have the oil, natural gas, coal, you know, the nuclear, the hydro, wind and solar, all that energy and we make all these goods and services that we deliver to the market and we all buy them. That's what the energy is there for. We don't have the energy to settle that $500 trillion in financial assets. Mm-hmm. It's very inflationary. And so this is what the market doesn't understand. We, don't, we just have enough energy to do the GDP, which is going to start to peak, plateau, and decline. So that's why I'm trying to wake up people to understand why they need to be in sound assets. And the financial assets are going to get into serious trouble because it's a Ponzi scheme. And the reason why it's a Ponzi scheme, because we don't have the energy to settle it. And that's what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, with so much in the form of renewables coming into the grid, will that help make up for this power loss or for the loss of power generated from coal plants in the U.S.? Okay. Um, yes, Right now, the, the renewables, as we grow them, we don't have to burn fossil fuels. We don't have to burn coal. We don't have to burn natural gas. And so, yes, as we grow, especially in Europe and now the United States, we don't have to burn the fossil fuels. And that is going to continue. The issue is the one big problem, and they're trying to offset this with battery technology, is that as the wind and solar go up, the, the larger percentage when that goes offline, you have a bigger amount, a larger amount of that going offline that you have to bring on natural gas. You can't really do it with coal. Nuclear is stable. So it's very volatile. And so that's just going to get worse as time goes on. And wind to me, Tom, the wind power is the worst of the two. Solar isn't as bad as wind. Wind is much more problematic because it's the technology is too expensive and too complicated. And we're starting to see big problems with the wind power industry. Well, you know, it's funny that you, you know, bring up the idea that we're not going to have to burn oil, let's say, or, or natural gas to produce that energy, yet to bring enough of these renewables onto the grid all requires fossil fuels to mine, yeah. to produce, to, you know, transport to the fields. You know, it's only once they're implemented that they start production. I, I think that's a huge step that maybe a lot of people don't think about. Probably not a lot of our listeners on this show, but you know, that's a huge chunk of 
getting to that end state that I think is really forgotten about. It seems like you just snap your fingers and you have a solar panel array or a wind farm that's already running and producing quote unquote clean energy. But it's that the other piece of it of what it actually costs to produce those panels, to mine those resources out of the ground that I think a lot of people forget about. No, they do. It's I call it, you know, we've made this joke before, the start the Amazon Star Trek economy. You push a button and two days later you get your, you know, your your package in the front door. No one sees the entire system to get mm-hmm. that there. And so it's the same thing with green energy. All of a sudden you got a new solar panels up on your home and producing a power. But this is how I see it. They're going to continue to ramp up green energy. And it looks like we're switching more towards solar, which is the better alternative if you're going to do it. So what we're doing is we're adding more and more, ramping it up. The problems are going to happen in the future because right now, the more you add, the less you have to burn in in, in either coal or natural gas. And so, but when you've got to replace that wind turbine in 15 years, when you've got to replace that solar panel in 20, whatever years, then, and, and oil production is declining now, it's going to be difficult to replace all that. So it's going to be a lag. It's going to kind of offset fossil fuels uh, burning to produce electricity. It's going to do that. But there's going to be a lag effect where it's going to come back to haunt us. That's what I'm trying to say. It's kind of an illusion now of helping us, but it's going to be, it's going to be a downside in 15, 20 years. That, that's how I see it, unfortunately. We're not going to be able to maintain a lot of that in 15, 10, 15, 20 years. You know, Steve, you've done so much research in these areas. Do you off the top of your head, remember, let's say, how much time it takes to replace or to offset the amount of energy that went into producing, let's say, a solar panel or a a wind turbine, you know, understanding how much time it takes to offset that cost of energy. Well, it's interesting when you look at the shale uh, industry, it, it, it the conventional these things are so profitable, these oil wells from mm-hmm. years ago, and still some of them are. So the profits are there, and then they go on for a long time. It, you, you pay off that well in a very short period of time because it's very profitable. Mm-hmm. Shale is different. It takes 15 years sometimes just to uh, double your money. With the wind and solar industry, I've looked at a lot of cash flow analysis, free, you know, the cash flow analysis, and these things sometimes don't pay themselves off. The only, the only reason why they work is due to the tax, sub, the, subs, the subsidies. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is, this is a big issue. And so uh, even after 15 years, like especially in, we're seeing some in Ireland and in the UK, they're, they're not even paying for themselves. So that, that's a big problem. And, and, but even though, but they may not pay for themselves, but at least they're providing the power that, Either Ireland or the UK is not using natural gas or coal, but unfortunately, the economics are still not there for for these kind of this technology. So, does this shift in energy production also factor into your idea about the energy cliff, or is that more about the quantity of actual reliable energy that is out there? It's both. Uh, you know, there's like people say the wind and solar have a much higher energy return on investment, and, and that's not including the full cycle costs. And they really don't 
because we have to factor in the entire global supply chain. Mm-hmm. And what we tend to forget, the decades of time binding, all this technology and all these people going to college and all these scientists and all these uh, people putting together and engineers to get where we're at today. We want to forget all the energy that we spent in the last two, three decades. You had to spend that energy to be able to make that very advanced solar panel. So when you look at it now and you cost it out now, you want to exclude all that prior energy investment, whatever it's labor or knowledge or capital, whatever. And so the the energy return on investment, a lot of these um, alternative wind system solar, they're really, they're offsetting fossil fuels, yes, but they're not changing the overall dynamic. It's kind of a sleight of hand. And unfortunately, it's not a good sleight of hand. So uh, I think the best thing we need to do going forward is just become a lot more efficient with the energy we use. That to me is the biggest I think we're going to see companies go into efficiencies of the energy we have. That's a new market I think needs to develop. How to become more efficient with the energy that we consume. Well, Steve, that seems like a real double-edged sword coming into Christmas time when everybody's plugging in Christmas lights and Uh, buying all kinds of extra crap that nobody needs. You know, that's just a, unfortunately, one example, I think, of, I sound like a total Scrooge here, but of a real waste of energy that is something that we really take for granted, unfortunately. And until and, until we really start to face higher costs, I don't think that that really brings into frame, like into focus for a lot of people, how important energy is. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know about you, but those damn Christmas tree lights or the, the Christmas lights you buy, a lot of them come from China. And I can assure you those things, if you buy four strands next year, like well, likely one won't work. Yeah. And by five years, you got to buy all new ones. And so it, it's, it's, you know, it's, we're, we're continuing to buy this stuff and throw it out. Mm-hmm. And so we don't realize how much energy it takes. And I've said this before, China produces and consumes half the coal in the world. And they have made more cement in the last three years than the United States has poured in a hundred. And so they're shipping all these goods, all these Christmas lights, all these things, products all over the world. And we're, we continue to buy it. But yeah, you're right, Tom. It takes a hell of a lot of energy to do that. We just don't see it. Again, this is Amazon, Star Trek economy. We're kind of clueless. And, and I, I don't blame people because they just don't see what's going on. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, when we think about, let's say, the dynamics of the really the U.S. oil industry and how much of mm-hmm. it gets exported, how does that affect our ability to have reliable domestic energy supply? And what do you see as the runway on that production? The U.S. Uh, the supply and demand situations is quite interesting because our Gulf coasts are designed for medium grade oil. And we produce up, upwards of eight and a half, nine million barrels a day of tight oil, which is lighter, which our refineries aren't designed to use. But we consume about four, four and a half million barrels of that domestically because we import that from Canada, the oil sands, which we mix it together. They call it a Franken blend. And we, we make, we can make a medium grade. We can get diesel and different products out of it. So we export, we're exporting 
about 4.1, 4.2 million barrels a day of our domestic tight oil because we can't really use it. The issue is maybe it would have been smart. Now, this is being selfish. Maybe it would have been smart to keep some of that production for future use. But again, that production is now supplying other countries around the world. And that's doing some GDP, right? Energy is GDP is what it is. So even though we're importing about six, seven million barrels a day of medium grade oil to run our refineries for our uses, we're exporting about four. And I think that's going to start to decline when shell production rolls over. So this, this is the kind of strains issue. We've, we, if, if the U.S. was smarter with its reserves, we're exporting about 40% of our reserves every day overseas. That's, that's, that's helped you know, foreign countries, but it's, it's going to come back to hurt the U.S. shale, oil, and gas industry. So, Steve, how do we go about refilling the SPR at these price levels? And strategically, can we look back on this decision now as being a net positive for the country? You know, about three, four months ago, when the oil prices were much higher, I had I looked at the data, looked at the fundamentals, and the global inventories continue to five-year inventories continued to be lower. So it seemed to me, even though that Saudis and OPEC cut production, there's just a lot of demand now. And it seemed to me that would keep a bid in the oil price. Well, I got that wrong. I also said that due to the fundamentals, we would see lower natural gas prices. And people said, no, it's going to blow above three and a half. And it didn't. It hit $2.30 today. And I think it could even go lower. Again, on the short term, it's very volatile. And so uh, I, I think the the issue is the it was probably a smart thing that we sold the oil at a higher price because we you know we sold we sold the oil at a higher price about 300 million barrels now we're going to have to buy it back if we continue to see a rollover in the economy and oil prices remain low and we start adding well guess what we're doing we're going to kill the shale industry because profit margins are falling now because their their break evens now getting close to 70 so if, if, if we start getting into 65, we're exporting 4 million barrels of tight oil and we're not making money on that. And so, yes, even though we could add to our SPR, I do not think we're going to add 300 million barrels. We may add 50, but this is going to be an inter- interesting dynamic as the energy cliff starts to come back to haunt us in the next several years. So lower oil prices might be good for, you know, for the economy and for, you know, the consumers, but it's not good for the shale industry where most of the growth in the world came from. Well, you know, Steve, to that point, are we able to refill the SPR from the actual production that comes from the Permian and, no. and these shale oil basins? Or is it a different type of end product that we actually need to still import heavier oil to blend with? Yeah, I, you know, who knows? They could, they could, uh, inject some of the light tight oil, but probably they're going to have to import that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or it, they're going to have to import that and, and use that because the the uh, SPR is in the Gulf Coast area. That's where the caverns are. And so that, they're going to need the medium grade oil to purchase, to put back in there. That would, that's that what makes common sense to me. So I, even though they could put some light tight oil, I think the majority of overwhelming majority is going to have to be medium grade. And most of that's going to be imported. Mm-hmm. So when we think about 
maybe being able to refill the SPR with some of our domestic oil production, which is, you know, like the shale oil production or the tight oil. Are we at or near the peak of that oil production capability right now? I think we're getting there. Uh, and the problem is there's a lot of different analysis about the, the shale industry. But when I look at the data and I really crunch the numbers, uh, uh, Wall Street Journal came out and said in the last, since 2016, the, uh, the well productivity in, in the Permian and in, in the shell industry has increased 59%. And that is true because the wells have gotten a lot bigger, a lot longer. And also, they're, they're shoving in a lot more water and fracking uh, propens or fracking sand. So, what I've noticed when you look at the productivity in the Permian, this is the this is this chart shows a Permian field starting in 2016, going to uh, year to date 2023. What it's showing is for thousand feet of well lateral, and what you notice in 2016, the well average was about 6,800 feet. Now it's over 10,000. That's the average. Exxon, I did a three and a half mile lateral. And there's a lot of three mile laterals being, that's 15,000 feet plus. And so what's happened is they're making longer wells. They're, and look at the propence, which is the, the sand. In 2016, it was 11 million pounds per well. Now it's 22. It's doubled. So this is the illusion of, a, of more oil. It isn't. We're just, we're just shoving in a lot more stuff, making these things longer. The downside, if you notice the white line, we peaked in the efficiency in 2021. It's been declining. And so uh, this is the problem when you go to very long laterals. You don't get as much oil, especially at the, at the longer end, at the end of the three, three and a half mile lateral. And the Eagle Ford, which is the other Texas shale field, the, its productivity is much worse. It's, it, it peaked back in 2019, and it's really falling down. And so I think this is the problem we're going to be facing, even though we will be in a plateau for a while. We're going to start to see a rollover in U.S. shale production due to what we're seeing right here in front of us. The well efficiency is starting to go in the opposite direction. Yeah, it just seems as you increase the length of wells, you're increasing the complexity the amount of, you know, exactly as you sell the prop ants going into them, just all of the costs associated with it get higher and higher. And, and that's and one kind thing of going back to your EROI idea, something that yeah, you and and have it, spoken about before. So sorry to interrupt you, but you're, you're, you're right. And it's one thing there you're, you're adding more production. These, these three mile laterals, geez, you get there. It's a lot more production at the front end. But now so a lot of these are declining much faster. So it's, it's, I call it the Red Queen Syndrome. Not only do we have the Red Queen Syndrome globally, we're seeing it happening now in the shale industry. So it's bigger and better and, and, and longer and more fracking water. And now an issue that they're going it, to, it, it takes a lot of water to frack and they have to dispose of it. And this is what's causing earthquakes. And, and it's very toxic water. And so this is, and then in 2024, Biden has passed something where you can't, these, these shale whales can't release the methane, the natural gas. Some, some of it's being released. It won't be able to because it's cheaper to release it than get some kind of pipeline to store that natural gas. It's cheaper just to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. And so these are the issues that the shale industry is going to be facing in the years ahead.
So Steve, you know, on the other side of the pond, what do inventories look like, you know, going into this winter? And do you think that Europe possibly learned the wrong lesson from the mild winter that they had last year? No, they didn't. I, I, I think they did learn a little bit. And this is the, the chart showing of European natural gas storage as of December 11th. You can see the dark blue line. That is 2023. And then you can see all the other lines. Well, what do you notice? Europe's never been totally full. This is the first time. Uh, and so they got it up to full. But then, unfortunately, Mother Nature sent them uh, a polar vortex. And all that cold Arctic air that's supposed to stay up there, like, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It came down and it really, it, it was, it put a lot of uh, extremely cold temperatures and they used a lot of natural gas. I think they used like 30 billion cubic feet more than in, in like about five, six days than they did, they did in the five-year average. So what did that do? You could see how quickly the natural gas storage has come down. Well, that polar vortex has gone away. It's warmed up. They're not. They're not using as much because you could look at this chart. And you'll see in December 11th, they only burned, they only withdrew 12.2 billion cubic feet. Well, the five-year average is 18. So actually, they're, they're doing a little bit better. And so I think with Germany cutting back on, on uh, demand for natural gas, and they're also deindustrializing to a percentage, switching to other, way, like coal and other things, they have cut back demand. And so I think they're going to make it through the winter okay. But then the energy cliff is going to come back to, you know, hint them again in the next several years. It, it just doesn't stop. And so if they want to continue to deindustrialize, they could save more natural gas burning, but then that's going to hurt their economy. So these are the issues that Europe is now facing because, Tom, Europe is the largest net importer of natural gas in the world. Asia is number two. So does that mean they're really a canary in the coal mine for the effects of debt levels and then not really having a domestic energy production? Is this really a preview what is to come for the energy cliff when you have this dynamic of higher debts and you know concurrently lower energy production? Yeah, the countries that are the net importers of the most energy are the ones that are going to get into trouble. Like Russia is the exact opposite, even though there's a lot of people putting out negative analysis about Russia. Russia exports 40% of its oil uh, and uh, or 50% of its oil and about 40, 35, 40% of its natural gas. Mm. Asia, uh, Europe imports most of its natural gas and Asia, Europe imports most of its natural gas. Asia imports most of the oil. So when you start getting into trouble with supply, Asia is going to be hit the most with, with, uh, with petroleum products and, and Europe's going to be hit the most with natural gas. And so this is your, your, you bring up a good point. It's a credit card and any country that lives on importing energy, they don't have enough energy to supply them. They're the ones that are going to get into more trouble in the beginning. And the ones that are still exporting are going to be probably they're going to be better off for a while. And that, that is kind of the, the kiss, keep it simple, stupid kind of analogy. And so the United States right now is producing a lot of natural gas and oil. We're, ex we're exporting uh, oil. We're exporting natural gas. So we are a net exporter. We weren't that before. So we could thank Shell for that. Now, yeah, this is now what 
and this is the last chart, and this is a great chart to conclude on. Because a lot of people say, Steve, you know, you all in the peak oil movement have got it wrong forever. And and actually, no, we haven't, because the devil's in the details, but people don't like to look at the details. So when you look at this chart, you'll notice that the conventional is in that olive color. Well, that's the good, high quality, uh, cheaper to produce um, energy return on investment oil. And what do we notice about that? It's rolling over. It actually peaked in 2006. That's why it's no coincidence that we hit $145 oil in 2007-8. And then we brought on uh, Tide Oil, which you see in that red. And we brought on more heavy oil, which is in the orange, and that mostly comes from Canada. And then look at that big yellow blob there. That's natural gas liquids. That's where a lot of the growth came from, especially from U.S. shale. The United States produces half of that natural gas liquids. Well, you can't make diesel with natural gas liquids. And the global supply chain, Tom, is run on diesel. That's what it is. It's, it's not run on, on gasoline. And so when you understand that the diesel mostly comes from the conventional, and I believe the conventional is going to continue to roll over, even though we can bring on more natural gas liquids, this is the problem the world faces. We're, rolling, we're, we're starting to roll over in the high-quality conventional oil that's what really drives the global economy. And, and so this is what we need to understand. The devil's in the details. And again, uh, that, that red, which is the shale oil, that declines 45% a year. We've got to make it up every year. So this is the things that the, we, we tend to overlook when people say, well, there's no peak oil because look at look how high the production is. And, and what you really need to look at is that conventional because that is what really runs the global economy. Excellent. Oh, so, and one more thing. Uh, if you look at, I, I didn't even mention, if you look at that, uh, the period there from 1960 to 1970, there's a reason why the, the price of oil stayed at $1.80 a barrel. <laughs> and now it's, it's all over the place, right? Mm -hmm. It goes up to 120 it comes down to $68. Why did it stay at $1.80 for an entire decade? And that's because we brought on all this conventional oil, so much of it from the Middle East and OPEC and around the world that we were awash in oil. We're no longer awash in oil. We could see the conventionals rolling over. And that's why it's become very volatile. And I think, unfortunately, it's going to become even more volatile. And so I just want people to realize the price action is we hit the energy cliff in conventional. You see, it peaked and now it's rolling over. When we start seeing the same in the unconventional natural gas liquids, shale oil, that's when prices are going to get very volatile on the upside and downside. Excellent, Steve. So, you know, as you said, kind of concluding here, what are you keeping your eye on into the end of the year and in January? Well, as I mentioned in the beginning, Tom, it's very difficult to know what's going to happen due to the massive amount of stimulus that's being added into the market to three and a half trillion. Uh, but, and that's just the United States, it's happening in China. I, I think moving forward, I think we're going to see a rollover in the economy because uh, a lot of that money that was the pandemic is gone and Americans now are, are using more money to, uh, to saving. They use the, the savings has disappeared using credit cards more and the housing market is starting to get into trouble. And unless we have a major geopolitical or financial uh, event, 
I think the market's going to roll over. I think, I think we're likely going to get into a recession. I don't know how big a recession is. And that also depends on how much more debt Yellen continues to pump into the market. And if she continues to do that and inflation comes back, Fed, the Fed may have to raise rates again. So who knows? It's, we're, we're, very, we're in crazy times. And again, I think if we get a major event, we could see some crazy prices in energy and in the metals. So this is we're in a whole different world now due to the reaching this this plateau of energy production. A whole a whole different volatile world. Yes. Excellent, Steve. Well, I appreciate you sharing all of this with us today. Of course, for any listeners that enjoyed Steve's charts and his information, everything that he does is available at SRS Rocco Report, either your website or on Twitter at SRS Rocco Report, right? Yeah, uh, I, I do spend a lot of time on Twitter. And again, I try to provide the subscribers with the changing details because the energy is going to, pro- there's a direct relationship with GDP and energy growth or the opposite. If energy growth falls, you're going to have falling GDP. So when you understand that, it's going to impact everything, especially the $500 trillion in financial assets. That's why I'm a big believer, Tom and being in real assets in the future. Investors just don't know it. And so that's what I'd like to talk about. Thank you for letting me share the time with you. And uh, I hope everyone has a a happy holiday season when it comes. Thanks very much, Steve. Always appreciate the conversation with you. Thank you. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.